0: Head to the slash merch. Every purchase helps
1: us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch
0: today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: So many great movies, so many great conversations, but it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies
0: that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We had some great films in season eight that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals.
0: That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we have covered. From season one up through our current season.
1: For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968.
0: We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right?
1: Don't you even get me started. (sighs) Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon
0: again? Yes! Also, so much better! <laughs> wait, wait, no! That's not what I... Uh, <laughs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger
1: Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films.
0: Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard?
1: They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books!
0: I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <sighs>
1: Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel.
0: And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver.
1: We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight.
0: We haven't talked about Gaslight.
1: Stop gaslighting
0: me. <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreelcom slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast.
1: Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreelcom slash originals.
0: the next reel everybody i'm pete Wright, and that there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies tonight in the show we're coming to you straight from fatmo's speakeasy with sergio in once upon a time in america
2: arnon milshan presents a sergio leone film starring robert de niro once upon a time in america the story of friends As boys, they made a pact to share their fortunes. Agreed. Their loves and their lives. You'll put up and you'll shut up. You hear nothing and you see nothing. Just like you did for Bugsy. (laughs) You was better off if you stayed in the Bronx. It began as a dream. It grew to an empire. It ended as a mystery. That refused to die. Robert De Niro, James Woods, Elizabeth McGovern, Joe Pesci, Burt Young, Tuesday Weld, and Treat Williams in a Sergio Leone film, Once Upon a Time in America.
0: It takes a, a certain kind of ego to make a four hour movie, <laughs> don't you think? It's a long one. It's definitely
1: a long one. I, you know, I have never minded long movies, so I, I guess know. for me, I don't. It's like, yeah, whatever. Lawrence of Arabia, this, greed. and I love Lawrence of Arabia. You
0: know, I love Lawrence Lord of the Arabians. Rings. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Love yeah. it. It's yeah, a big this, story, and it is a big this story. Is,
1: well, it, this is one of those stories where, as you watch it, you, there are times where I'm like, I wonder if if we needed all of this in the story.
0: Okay, I am so glad you said it. <laughs> I know I sort of was leading you there. So helping you out there. But I'm so glad you said it because I... I don't think that about some very long movies. This movie, I thought that. I thought that repeatedly. Uh, do we need this stuff? And this is a movie, like, it, here we are. I, I guess we should do a little bit of setup. At what what we were watching, what we're doing, uh, and how we landed on this particular movie. This is the third in the Once Upon a Time uh, sort of spiritual trilogy from Sergio Leone that we started with Once Upon a Time in the West, celebrating his 1968 uh, 50, 50th anniversary. So now we're here. We're on this last film. Uh, w- Why?
1: What's interesting about this is this film is the one that Leone wanted to make. This was the one that he wanted to make back in 1968. He had read this book. He wanted the rights. He wanted to tell this story because he was captivated by it. Unfortunately, the, somebody else had the rights at the time, and so he just kind of had to sit on it and hope that it never got made. And meanwhile, he got into the whole um, uh, spirit of making the other films and and putting together the deal to make this uh, these other films. and uh, And he kind of went on with his business. and it wasn't until uh, you know a good number of years later when he finally was able to get the rights for this story, this novel. Um, by Harry Gray, called I believe it was called The Hoods. Yes, and um, he and he finally got to to write it and tell the story. So it fits into our Once Upon a Time trilogy because we're celebrating uh, films and franchises from 1968 and celebrating the 50th anniversaries. Uh, but what's interesting, I think, about this one is there is kind of this element of it that was almost meant to have been released in 1968. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is where, when what he's really pushing for. And interestingly, the entire, uh, you know, chronologically speaking, the final, uh, part of the film, uh, chronology wise, when, when Robert De Niro comes back to the city as an older man, it is in
0: 1967, 1968. Right. Which is actually an interesting little tie. The, the film went through, um, Well, it was it was incrementally butchered uh, over uh, after its release uh, through Europe and then in the United States. Uh, And I I, usually we talk about that uh, toward the end, uh, or at least when we're talking about how the film got made. But I sort of feel like we need to talk about that now because it directly impacts our conversation about what we watched.
1: Well, and you had seen the film before. I had never watched this until this extended director's cut um, came out after they restored it in uh, 2000. I think it premiered at the 2012 Cannes Film Festival. And um, after and that was like once they released that in Blu-ray, that was the first time I actually had ever seen this film. So I have only ever seen this version. But so you didn't see it when it was in chronological order. I didn't. I didn't. Right, and that was. I think that's how it was originally released that's here right. in the states back in uh, 1984. Um, it was a much shorter film. I think it was two hours and twenty minutes. About right, and uh, and like you said, recut to be chronological. Um, and yeah, Leone really just had no control over what people were doing with it. With it, it seems, because I think in. In Europe, it was non-chronological. In the Soviet Union, um, it was, uh, again, another... It was actually split into two movies. Um, There was a TV version, uh, just all these different versions of it. And I think it really suffered because of that, especially here in the States, because there's something... Granted, it's a long film, but there is something about the way that it jumps between uh, time periods from the... um, the middle story to the early story to the last story and back and forth that I think really lends to the flow of it and I can only imagine that watching it chronologically is just
0: gonna kind of mess with that well you know it's funny be I don't have a, a strong well I should say I only have a strong sense memory of the film right i I didn't remember a lot of detail going into this uh, and uh, but but I do have this feeling watching it this time that it, it actually makes sense now and, and not just that it makes sense it it makes uh, sort of uh, narrative sense when you get surprised by something that characters do you get surprised by uh, you know how how and when characters lives inter Twine. uh it, it actually just makes it, it it's better this way uh the way we watched it than it was uh, before but i walked away from my first experience with the film having really enjoyed it and now i feel sort of dirty for ever saying that because this was a much better experience uh <laughs> than than the cut that i saw so it, there were there were three i i think formative cuts the first was the can cut which was the the original his original release um which was two hundred and twenty-seven minutes. The U.S. cut uh, was brought down to one thirty-nine, um, and that's the that's the original theatrical cut. And then the one that we watched is the the uh, I what is the, what is the minutes on the one we watched. 251 minutes 251 minutes that's the extended director's cut and what is included in the extended director's cut is stuff that the film foundation and that the leone uh, family foundation found i guess and decided this is gonna this is true to the spirit of sergio's original idea of this film we're gonna go ahead and and do our best to remaster this to make it look as close to the original film as we can and we're gonna slap it back in there
1: um, yeah, Leone Leone had cut it uh, from his 269 minute version um it was 269 they when they restored it they unfortunately were not able to find those uh, missing 18 minutes um that are at this point um completely lost to time unfortunately or mm-hmm. 24 minutes however many it is um there's a chunk that at, at this point there's just you know they don't know if they'll ever find. Um, But Leone had cut uh, a number of these scenes um, in order to kind of hit this 229 minute mark for the theatrical premiere. And so that's technically the version that he approved, the 229. But the 269 is the version that I think he would have preferred had he been able to release it his way.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's uh, there there are pieces of it. I'll Spoil this part. I I did. I enjoyed my experience with this movie. I was fatigued by the end of this movie, and and you know other long movies. You know, you mentioned Lawrence. Uh, I I don't have the same sort of fatigue at the end of that movie. That's a movie that I can sit through uh, and and not take advantage of intermission. Uh, this is a movie. I it took me days to get through this movie. I had to watch it at like a you know mini series, um, and I. I I don't know what that's all about. Um it doesn't seem to, to me to have the weight of something like The Godfather, you know, if we're gonna compare um in in genre. Um and, and yet it is still beautiful. It is it still has some really strong moments and these you know, watching these kids, um these sort of uh Jewish street rats uh grow up to become the mob and their you know interactions with one another is is um overall, a, a really great experience for me yeah
1: i I would agree with that. I actually have a great time watching the film. I enjoy the characters. I enjoy the story i I enjoy the pace i mean i I really do enjoy the way it just kind of unfolds. Yes, there's a lot of story here, and sure, there's probably stuff that we could cut or could have been streamlined in order to tell it in even a three hour version or two and a half hour version. Um but I still end up enjoying it. And um it's not a perfect film. I certainly have issues with elements of it, but I, I find myself uh drawn to this uh group of uh these these troubled Jewish youths and watching them grow up I find really interesting. And um yeah, I mean it's it I it wouldn't be my favorite Leone film. But I am glad that um that I've seen it now and i i i find myself um in a place where I enjoy watching it unfold um like you i i i it's not an easy one one time sit down and watch all four hours and twenty minutes or whatever it is um it's a little beefy um <laughs> but but I still find myself really uh, just kind of once it's on. It's easy to just kind of let it kind of wash over
0: me. Part of what's interesting to me about this movie is the way we it it sort of compares to, um, you know, the the hood mentality um, here uh, with the sort of hood mentality we have in all the Westerns that we've watched from Leone. Right. I mean, there is a certain aesthetic that he captures when he's capturing crime on screen. And to me, I found it really satisfying to watch him uh, sort of recreate uh, his story of masculinity and story of violence and and do it just with a sort of a different skin on it. Did you notice that? Yeah, I think that's an
1: apt way to kind of look at the film and and how. How the society is growing and changing. And it again, it certainly fits in with a more mature theme that we find in this trilogy as opposed to his Man with No Name trilogy, which definitely feels more uh, just kind of fun genre Western Mm -hmm. Uh, with some characters. They make decisions that don't necessarily have uh, big consequences um but it's just fun it 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 unfolds in really enjoyable ways these three films that we've been watching for this particular trilogy all feel like the stakes have been raised when people make decisions it's a lot more serious and um as as we kind of talked about back in in the first episode it really is kind of this trilogy of the the birth of a country and how things change with you know the the expansion of the railroad and the death of the old west and revolutions and how they kind of grow and change society and here we get kind of a society that's a little farther along but how you have those different elements within it and this is certainly a look at that criminal element and how it grows and kind of takes over to a certain extent and it is interesting to see how that kind of compares to what he was doing in his westerns and we've got these these darker characters but i I guess my point is what i find interesting is how in this particular film um, especially uh, maybe even more so than the previous two i find that there's a lot bigger consequences with some of these decisions and the way that things unfold if he had characters making decisions like some of these guys do in his man with no name trilogy i don't think that it would have fit it would have felt kind of strange and a little you know off as far as the tone
0: yeah yeah it it really feels like this this film um is Leone in that regard right that he has sort of been practicing how bold he wants to be in the statements that he's making with the the films that he makes and this one um, you know he is he's making an, an overt statement around organized crime and its connections to business and politics and um, and and what you know and the, and the fact is this whole trilogy, is kind of telling that story, right? It's telling that story that even across the arc of time, uh, human organisms uh, find a way to create these kinds of systems that will benefit, you know, uh, benefit those willing to take these kinds of risks. And uh, so I I find that a a really interesting um, kind of statement. Yeah, very much so. It's an important film to him. I mean, uh, you know, he had invested a lot of time, uh, you know, in in getting to know uh, Herschel Goldberg and Herschel Goldberg is uh, Harry Gray, the, the author of The Hoods. Herschel Gold- Goldberg was a real life retired gangster. And and, um, you know, it's it, as as I read it, uh, Leone was incredibly invested in this lifestyle and wanted to tell this story with a a certain degree of authenticity. And I think that, that makes the movie particularly the, the sequences of the youth, you know um, something that, that really resonates even, even stronger with me. Um, And uh, you know, overall I think the kids did a, a bang up job of some really dark and complex material around aging and sex and, crime and and their willingness to do violence to one another it's kind of got that i was about to say lord of the rings lord of the flies vibe to it <laughs> uh, and lord of the rings i mean you know with the French. orcs so uh it's it's uh, it's strong and and uh, dark material
1: well what's interesting about uh herschel goldberg or harry gray is that he actually was a real gangster and he actually wrote this book uh while he was incarcerated. He was in Sing Sing. And um it's it, it's kind of a memoir of his life. Now according to uh reports, it's part factual, part uh part fiction. There's kind of a, a little balance between it. A lot of people think that it's it the the stuff when he was a kid is really factual stuff. And then as, as the character gets older, more and more of the stuff is, is kind of fictionalized. And I think some of it, people assume that it's, it's fictionalized to alter, to make him look better because he, he's basically is the character noodles. And um, that right. I think was even his, uh, his nickname. Um, And so it's interesting that um, that Leone gravitated so much to this story. And uh, really, I mean, from the 60s, when he first read it all the way until the 80s, when he finally got a chance to make it, he was just fascinated by it. And really wanted to tell this story. And it's, it's a tricky story. And we've talked about this with qu- quite a number of shows about doing films about unlikable characters, characters who just are criminals or are doing terrible things. And, you know, Robert De Niro's character, uh, Noodles, definitely fits that mold. You know, he does a lot of terribly unlikable things. And it's not like he progressively gets more likable as the film, um, as the film moves along. I mean, you've got the just horrific rape scene when he uh, thrusts himself on, on uh, his, his, uh, the girl of his dreams. And here he is forcing himself on, on Deborah in the car. And it's just, oh, my goodness, it's just heartbreaking to see what he does there. And uh, it's, it's, I don't know, I just find it really interesting. It's an interesting character study uh, more than anything. Yeah. And
0: and just, you know, Elizabeth McGovern does an incredible job there. I mean, talk about the the sense of, of enormous kind of criminal privilege. Right. I mean, this is a different kind of privilege that he's exerting on her because he is, again, as you say, he's not a good person. Um, you know, we get a sense uh, occasionally throughout. We get these peaks of heroism where he's the guy you're following. You, you kind of feel like you're rooting for him. And if there are people trying to kill him and he kills them first, that's that's a win in this kind of a movie. And so uh, e- even if it's a, a, you know, a rather kind of horrifying or surprising uh, assassination. Uh, but then you get these sequences that that don't, frankly, hold up very well to me. And and I struggle with them um, because their treatment in the film is is a little bit cavalier to my eye right now. And it feels dated. Uh, it feels like if you remake the movie today, uh, you know, you're going to do it with a with a different kind of sensibility uh, and agency. And because these the women characters in this movie are. They're not great. We have some great, uh, a couple of great moments with Elizabeth McGovern. This is one of them. The other is the confrontation and makeup when she's in in her uh, Egyptian um, uh, queen makeup, um, Cleopatra. Right, Cleop- yeah, right, right. Cleopatra uh, uh, makeup where she's she's has a particularly strong scene. But overall, the women in this movie are lack a, a sense of of agency and spirit, and they are used very much used, and it just feels. Uh, Empty, so it makes those sequences of rape the kind of rapey hypersexualization sequences. uh, They don't, they don't evoke anything. But let's move on, right? There's no for me. There's no sense of kind of fire, narrative fire for me.
1: Well, uh, uh, just as an asterisk to that, I will say I think Tuesday Weld is fantastic in this film. I think she is uh, just wonderful in the role that she plays. It's a tough role to play. This uh, kind of Uh, masochistic woman who gets into these relationships with awful people but just watching her as she evolves through the course of the film I really really enjoy um, so that's my
0: little asterisk. You know, and I guess I'm just I, I guess I just want to spin off that because we've because we know that Leone has struggled in the past with strong women characters. And we have these highlights of great women characters. And I think you're right. Carol in this film is one of those. And we had one in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. And uh, we did not in Duck, You Sucker. And so that that was all. Leone feels like a filmmaker to me that
1: uh, he, he struggles with. Uh, telling stories about women. I think he does a great job in Once Upon a Time in the West. I think he has a couple of really interesting women characters in this film here, regardless of kind of how you feel about how they end up getting used. I do find them both completely fascinating. But I find that as a filmmaker, when it comes to telling stories about women, he falls into that camp with, uh, like, Michael Mann, who does a great job of telling stories about men, um, often bad men, doing... Um, their misdeeds and and dealing with the consequences therein, I find that uh to be really interesting to actually kind of compare those two filmmakers and see what they were doing with their films because I think there's a really clear line between what he's doing with with these films and what Michael Mann is doing with films like Thief and Heat. you know No, I
0: could not agree more i I think that's a, a really astute comparison and and uh, a great. Uh, kind of pair even as you know with every day that passes their movies become sort of that much more uh, of relics you know in in many respects to that end i think that
1: leone's only saving grace if you can say that is the fact that it's a period film and uh, yes obviously it, it you know certain the way that people were treated women were treated may unfortunately fit better in context of the stories that he's telling. Um, right, I, right. I don't think that Michael Mann can get away with that with some of his films that he was <laughs> doing uh, that take place in present day, but still.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not nearly as, as lucky. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. So you never saw it in uh, chronological order, uh, so I, I imagine jumping around time periods is, is nothing for you. What's your, what's your sense of his use of time in the film?
1: I I really like the flashback structure. This is something that he's been working on for a few dollars more. That's where he kind of worked on that structure a little bit. And then I think we saw quite a bit of that in the the last two films that we've been talking about. And I find this uh, flashback structure to be really interesting, the way that it's kind of weaving us through these three periods of time all throughout the film. I really actually enjoy it quite a bit. It's almost more just a structural style rather than flashbacks because, I mean, it's very consistent through the entire film. It's not like Once Upon a Time in the West, which it has some very specific flashback moments designed to be Harmonica's kind of recollection of his past. This one is really jumping around quite a bit, and I, I would argue that it's not necessarily like we're watching noodles and he flashes back to a period in time. You know, I I think that it's just the way that the story is structured and I think it actually works really nicely.
0: I do too. I find it really rewarding the way it works this way because you get, you get to kind of unravel the, the lessons that noodles is learning at each uh, sort of major milestone in his life and i think you know it It all leads up to the final uh, confrontation or not confrontation the finer conver- conversation between old noodles and old max in the office when max says you gotta you gotta off me right i, I can't take it from anybody else but you uh and and he walks away and says you know what that's that's not going to be uh, that's not who i am anymore and i think as a result of jumping through time and seeing these major sort of milestones in his life um that final moment is earned for me it is earned in a in a profound way and and uh, i i think the sequence is, is just terrific
1: yeah it's a very powerful moment and uh followed by a really haunting moment as as uh, noodles is walking away in the dark in that <laughs> crazy like uh insanely large garbage truck is driving by and you got that shot of of max um, or is it in the distance and then all of a sudden as the garbage truck drives by he's gone and it throws that idea like did he just throw himself into the garbage truck did somebody just take him am i imagining all this it plays really interestingly and that's actually something that i think is a really interesting uh, interpretation of this film that uh, there is this whole school of thought that this uh, after uh, noodles turns his friends into the cops in this, the middle story, which takes place in like the, the mid thirties. um, he, he goes and just doses himself up high on, on opium and just and has a drug-induced dream. And everything that takes place in the, the later uh, portion of his life is all an opium dream. And it's really interesting when you look at it that way, especially because the film ends with him back in that opium den in the 30s, uh, kind of totally high, just like smiling and staring up into the camera it's it's a very interesting interpretation and when you look at the way that max kind of disappears in that last scene you can almost see how it could uh how it could work i don't know if i buy into the interpretation but i like thinking about that as an option
0: yeah i mean that that smile at the end is uh, that's a taxi driver smile right there you know what i mean <laughs> right. like that is if, if if that's not a travis bickle smile i i don't know what is and it's haunting and and uh sort of terrifying i i'm with you i don't i don't like thinking of the movie that way um i i think it loses uh, its sense of commentary uh when when you look at it as it was all a dream i i kind of hate it was all a dream stories and so uh i'm not I I choose to ignore that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're in the majority. I think most people who have yeah. heard about that interpretation are like, "No, oh, that's just complete nonsense." I,
0: yeah, like I won't go so far as as demanding that you take it back, <laughs> but but I do choose <laughs> to ignore it. That's really uh, funny. Yeah, so uh the, the the time structure is is fantastic and I I have to say um it, you know, I I know we'll we'll get into Um, uh, probably get into more of the music in a little bit. But I just have to say this, uh, you know, in in terms of things that drive the movie forward for me, this is the most rewarding Morricone score. Um, Even if I'm not always crazy with the choices they make with the music, the score is my favorite uh, to date. Uh, And now are you including everything or just this trilogy? This trilogy, these three. But it it leads me to some of my... like deepest favorite Morricone scores which is like the mission like i i hear strains of a a mature uh morricone in this movie and i'm i am moved i am moved in a very positive way
1: it's a beautiful score i really uh, uh you know i have a hard time um arguing the point with you at all because i think that it is kind of a neo morricone in top form he's just just such a uh, he created such a beautiful score here. It just is um, wonderful. You can feel kind of the the heartache and just
0: everything uh, going along with it. It's just really rewarding. Um, I do torn, I do though, love the fact that I have created such an environment about Marconi over these last few films <laughs> that your instinct is just to find something to fight with me about
1: it on. <laughs> I, I know I want to. Uh, I I'm a little torn because I feel like Once Upon a Time in the West might be my pick of this trilogy though really yeah
0: is it because of harmonica's theme
1: i i
0: feel like it's jill's
1: theme more than harmonica's interesting. theme interesting
0: yeah. interesting well uh, i can yeah. i can see it and i i i wouldn't uh i wouldn't blame you for that uh but uh, for me this is uh, you know, this I'm I'm moving. This film is like the open door to the arc of his career. That is my favorite work of his. And so yeah. I'm, I just got very excited when I heard um,
1: it's it's a fantastic score. I mean, tropes. you really just can't argue with yeah. it. It's just some of just the most beautiful music out there. And as far as you're concerned, it doesn't have anyone going Sean Sean. Oh, there's no Sean
0: Sean Sean. There's no deep deep down. There's no. Oh God, we've moved on. We have moved on. Thank God. Um, Uh, There were a lot of hands in the screenplay. Uh, What's that all about?
1: Uh, It is about
0: uh, I don't know. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> I mean, just check that out, right? So we know Harry Gray wrote the novel. We know Leone was very excited about that. We know Leone is, uh, his, his fingers are in the script, uh, along with Leonardo Benvenuto and Piero De DiBinardi and Enrico Medioli and Franco Arcalli and Franco Ferrini and I mean, come on, that's just a lot of hands and and not to mention additional dialogue from Stuart Kaminsky and uh, uh, uncredited uh, Ernesto Gastaldi on this. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight people credited uh, with screenplay. I was hoping you were going
1: to do Stuart Kaminsky in your terrible italian <laughs> stuart kaminski no that there you go there you go <laughs> just get it out there right no,
0: my italian's fantastic
1: uh, go... <laughs> yeah this is uh I, you know it's it's a script that he uh he really loved this book like i already mentioned and i am not really sure why uh, why it took him so many writers cuz he certainly didn't work with this many writers on his previous films I'm not exactly sure um, what happened. In that sense, it fits in with films like Children of Men that for whatever reason, it just takes a lot of hands uh, clacking away at the keyboard, uh, or in this case, the typewriter, to get the job done. And sure, it's a it's a long, beefy project. Um, I think that I heard uh, Stuart Kaminsky, actually, of all of those people, Um, talking in some of the the behind-the-scenes bits and how he was given the original treatment that Leone had put together. And it was like a 400-page document or something crazy like that. Yeah, that's right. and, um, And it was an Italian script. And the way that they do that is it's all the action on the left and dialogue on the right and it was just action the whole thing was action only and leone said you know, just f- figure it out figure it out fill in the fill in the other side and uh so he kind of had to just jump in and really kind of uh crank on figuring all that stuff out but yeah i mean when it's a long script like this i guess i can say that's why you know but otherwise i don't know
0: the version of the script that is linked in the show notes for education purposes only is a uh it's the english version of the script that it comes in at 321 pages. <laughs> And it is if you're interested in the structure that Andy is talking about, you should check it out because uh, it is still structured, even as it is in it has been sort of um, translated into English. They kept the structure. And so you can see the uh, um, the action on the left and the dialogue on the right. And it's it's kind of fun to uh, kind of fun to run through if even if you don't have the patience to get through all three hundred twenty one pages, it's it's significant and it's a little scruffy scan. But uh, but it's worth it's worth checking out.
1: One thing that I do want to talk to you about, um, aside from the script, uh, which is a very interesting one is Leone's direction. We've been watching him. This is the sixth out of seven films of his that, uh, that we've talked about on the show. Um, so, um, we've definitely covered a, a hefty chunk of his body of work. I feel like as we've been going, there are certain techniques that we've been seeing quite a bit, um, And some of them he's been really developing, like the flashbacks. Another one that I think is a really interesting tool that he uses and has been really experimenting with. And I I think largely improving the way he does uh, use it is the way that he does his long reveals, where he sets something up and you don't really know what we're reacting to or what the scene is, what's what's happening For quite a while, like we talked about in the last episode with Ducky Sucker, when we have Juan in the cave and we're just staring at his face for a very long time before uh, we see what it is that he's reacting to, which happens to be all the dead people. Um, And he does that a number of times here. A lot of the times they work really well. And I actually, for the most part, um, think that he has really improved the way that he, he does that. The one thing that I will say, though, is that phone ringing for what feels like a half hour. Yeah. (laughs) It's one of the most annoying. Yes. One of the most annoying. It's like the first hour and a half of the film. It I felt like it was never going to end. It was so, so awful. Every time I watched it. And actually, it reminded me as I started watching it that I think I was flipping around once and I caught this like on on cable at one point and I came in just at that moment. So it was pretty early in the film, but I was like, why is this phone ringing all the time? There's no phone in the scene. And you know, it without the context of the rest of the film, I was like, I don't think I want to watch that movie because I don't think I can handle that. It is really annoying, and it takes. And and obviously, it's a key moment in Noodle's life. And when he's in kind of this opium haze, it makes sense that this thing is the thing that's kind of connecting all these parts of his life. This phone call that he made to to kind of squeal on his friends. Yeah, Um, I I think it's super fascinating, and I actually end up really liking it. But man, is it one of the most annoying things that leone has ever done it just it makes me want to like like stick chopsticks in my
0: ears it it is uh it it is gratuitous in its uh its revelation and i totally agree uh but i have to i have to uh, double agree with that point right that is a definitive moment in his life the way leone is able to go from there and uh, make a convincing argument that this gangster has given up his life and sent his buddy to prison uh, or, you know, sent his buddy uh, like his intention is to send his buddy away and send himself away in the process to protect him. Uh, I thought was a uh, was uh, really artfully done in terms of a, a testament to to his ghosts and to, you know, masculine friendship. Well,
1: and it does allow for what I think is a really fascinating mystery. I really enjoy watching the the senior version of Noodles in the 60s, trying to figure out who is this person who took the money? Why are they now after me? And I find it to be a really exciting mystery. I think that it works really well the way that Leonie has set the story up.
0: You have written here a feather factory. Are you talking about the dancing sequence?
1: No, I'm talking about the the wonderful scene when they have stolen the diamonds for Joe Pesci's character. Um, Well, for for uh, a friend of his, they steal these these diamonds and then they give them to uh, the guy who they stole them for. And then they kill him and all of his men and uh, go. And uh, this is Burt Young. And they they kill his men. And one of his men escapes the car and runs into this factory that's like full of, I, I honestly have no idea what sort of factory it is, but it looks like feathers in all these glass rooms. Like they're they're fluffing the feathers, getting ready to stuff them into like down pillows or something. I, I really have no yeah, context yeah. for what it is. But Noodles runs in there after this one guy who escapes and he's trying to find him and he's turning the lights on in these rooms. And he sees this guy in with all these feathers and just blasts him away in the feathers. It's such a gorgeous gorgeous scene.
0: I uh, I love that you go straight to the violence. I w- was actually loving the bakery, and it's not feathers; it's like flour, right? I right. think it's in the back where where uh, the young uh, Jennifer Conley is practicing her ballet, and uh, you, we have the young noodles uh, peeking through a a busted slat in the wall and watching her, and he's just you know worshiping her from a distance here as she practices her own um, ballet by herself, and. Uh, this sequence, the way it is shot, the way it is cut, anytime we have her on this raised platform, the way she's lit from the top with this sort of haze of flower in the air uh, is as close to a snow globe in real life on <laughs> real life on film uh, that I can remember. And I find it just heartwarming and beautiful uh, and and such a, a great exploration uh, visually of, you know, young love. I thought I think it's just really great yeah
1: that's a that's a beautiful uh scene and a series of scenes when they do happen there and i think jennifer connelly as just this young actress in her first role it clearly shows that she's got the chops because obviously she's gone on to a wonderful career but it's it's so fun watching her in this early scene and, and they are really touching scenes it does feel like young love happening and it's it's interesting to watch them play out all those scenes with with uh young deborah and young noodles Mm -hmm. uh scott schutzman as they uh as they kind of go through their relationship and i think the scene that really cements it is when bugsy and his men beat up noodles and max Mm -hmm. outside the door and she's inside and 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 he's knocking on the door after bugsy and his men have left and she's just kind of standing around the corner and she just won't answer the door. And it's like, that is the moment that clicks for her. That if I, if I go after this guy, this is the life I'm going to be in. And it's almost like this, this beautiful moment where something clicks for her and she decides I'm not going to do that and, and go a different route. And I, I like that quite a
0: bit with, uh, especially coming from such a young actress. Yeah, me too it's really a beautiful little performance. Uh and it you know just before I close the tab we got to just say Burt Young uh boy dis is he great playing uh, Paulie in this one too. Not that you would know because you've <laughs> you're not a big Rocky fan uh but I just loved seeing him as he's telling the story that awful story. <laughs> oh geez, right? Uh but uh, seeing him with Joe Pesci uh in in this film was really fun. You know, you brought up Joe Pesci. This is a moment of
1: great confusion for me that um, I want to run by you. So we've got this whole scene with Joe Pesci as Frankie setting this whole diamond robbery up for for Joe that I was just talking about. And that's it. That's all we see from Joe Pesci until very late in the film when we see um, this. It's it's when um, uh, it's when noodles and Max are arguing as they're standing over Treat Williams in the in the hospital and Treat Williams um guy I think it's Sharky is telling them kind of trying to set up an, another plan and and this is an interesting um split I guess you could say between Max and Noodles because Noodles is just like I'm happy doing the crime that I want that I'm doing and Max is trying to grow and become like this mega criminal and Noodles is just like nope I'm out and he leaves and he's like, I'm, I'm going to Florida or wherever he's going. And he goes downstairs and Max comes and joins him. And he's like, hey, you know what? I need a vacation too. And the two of them leave together. Mm-hmm. And as they walk out, we see Joe Pesci standing there in the lobby. Like he was listening and looking at them. And then and that's the end of the scene. And that's the only other time we see Joe Pesci. And I kept expecting, okay, so how does he come back in again? Because he was clearly getting himself tied up in that. And all I can think of is that there is another scene there in that missing 24 minutes that may explain why Joe Pesci showed up again at that point in the film. Did you notice that?
0: Yeah, I I did. And I am equally puzzled. And the thing that I read beyond your 24 minutes is that when Leone sat down uh originally, you know, after they finished the shoot of this thing, it was like a year, I, I think 13 months, I think they were shooting that he came back with like 10 hours. What what would have been 10 hours of sort of finished footage, <laughs> finished story. Yeah, and that's right, why he right. originally wanted to do two, three hour movies to make this thing. Right. It was going to be a six hour film. So out of 10 hours that we cut down to in this film four, I walked away from this film thinking there's a whole Joe Pesci movie that we don't get to see. Right. Uh, Because I and and the the Joe Pesci and the diamonds and his connections to uh, these, uh, you know, to to these kids who were these kids and, uh, you know, what is his role? And I I feel like there's a lot missing. It feels so strange to say that uh, about this movie that it actually feels like there's more missing. Uh, But I'm I'm right with you. It was a very strange way to leave that character. Yeah, and it's it's interesting
1: that it's still in there because I feel like if if anything it makes it more complicated. Yeah. And if you know, it would there have been a cleaner way to kind of cut out of that scene just to kind of cut the end off, just so that we weren't all of a sudden seeing that? But who knows? Who knows? It's it's it is an interesting little bit. But and then there's another one that people talk about a a potential um, area where there's uh, missing footage, and that's that weird frisbee transition that all of a sudden we have this frisbee flying at noodles as he's walking in the i think it's going as we transition from the 30s to the 60s and all of a sudden it's this frisbee coming at him it's like what the heck just happened there and this is well, like frisbees Rrr.
0: are a sign of the 60s don't you know oh apparently so yeah
1: <laughs> it was such a weird little transition that i just like i that was because you got that yeah like, right it's like some weird threat someone's throwing something at him and that's the only th- the only thing and some people would go well there's obviously deleted or missing footage right there
0: who knows i, I think given the size of the cast it's going to be tough to to go through everybody but anybody else that you r- really want to throw out uh as um somebody to highlight uh you know i
1: i do feel that james woods is really um at top form here i think that playing the older max Mm -hmm. Um, I just, uh, man, James Woods has been in a lot of movies, and uh, I feel like when I watch him in a film like this, I feel like I'm, um, seeing, um, just like a much greater depth of performance than I've seen in many of his other films, and I really just relish watching great James Woods performances like I get here.
0: Well, and I, you know, when you think about it, this film, uh. It's probably his seventh feature, maybe eighth. Uh, he'd done a lot of TV before, but he was still, I mean, it, you know, a, a relative kind of cinematic newcomer, and in 1984, yeah. and um, and and that's something I would say, you know, about everybody, maybe with the exception of Elizabeth McGovern, um, that the age process here of of taking these these characters the age makeup i found really believable and particularly for de niro and uh you know woods in this case um I, I think they really shined as they aged themselves, you know, that final sequence yeah. as they're having that conversation, you know, he's got teeth, he's got skin, he's got all the stuff on, but it still looked really solid, you know, it looked great and it allowed him to uh, showcase a kind of depth of performance that I thought, I, I think, really holds up. I think it's interesting because we've got all these these uh, all these characters that have um, their old and young and I think generally all of the kids did just as great a A job as the um as the adults
1: yeah it's a it is really a fantastic cast um i i didn't really have any issues with any of them i just love the way that leone got such just vivid and big performances from these kids um and actually another person that i would point out is is larry rapp as fat mo he's a guy that i feel like i i don't know if i've ever seen him before um i but I just felt such a great connection with this guy um, who just felt really authentic in this uh, as this kind of half in half out kind of gangster guy. I just I loved that actor in that role.
0: Can Can you tell me about Brian Bloom? Here's the thing. Brian Bloom. This was his second gig, right? He was on ABC weekend specials as Tony Dispirito in a different twist. And then he was young Patsy in Once Upon a Time in America. If that kid doesn't have (laughs) the most familiar face of any kind of male actor acting through the 80s and 90s, I don't know who he is. He was in so much TV. uh, He's on Eyes of the World Turns. Maybe that's where I know him. But I feel like I just feel like I know this guy more than I than anybody else in here uh, of, of the young faces. And I can't peg what it would be. Well, and now he's just in a ton, a ton ton of video games. He's the voice of he does so much voiceover work. But yeah. I I have no I could not even tell you what is it that I feel such a connection to this guy about. It's so crazy.
1: That's interesting. Uh, you know, as a as a kid, the stuff might be the only thing that I saw of his. That's where the like the ice cream that you know eats you from the inside or such <laughs> a terrible <laughs> terrible horror movie but uh he was in that um but looking through his his uh roster i realized there's just hardly anything um that i have actually seen him in so but he is he's one of those kids faces that does look very familiar
0: so. God, it's so familiar it's such an 80s handsome boy face you know Mm-hmm. yeah uh, uh, that, sh- that should be a thing. The 80s handsome boy. That sounds like it. maybe not a thing we for want all- to be responsible for coining. But.
1: For all we know, like the- he's one of those kids that we saw all the time. Like maybe he was in like a, a Star Wars toy commercial or something before right. he really was acting and you know, you know, playing with his action figures.
0: <laughs> I am sure you're right. That is such a I'm sure you're right. He's an axe. He's the action figure kid. That's I'm going to leave it there. I'm sure he was in that. Uh, but they were all great. Um and and I, I actually think that the uh the, the casting of the young actors to look like and be able to perform like their older characters, I think was I just wanna highlight that because I think it was too, this is one of those movies where they had so much of that going on because it's it's not a small cast and I can't think of a single one that doesn't really uh nail it. I am going to point out one more, and it's
1: it's less about the performance and more just about the way that Leone introduces him. Yeah, and it's Danny Aiello as Chief <laughs> Aiello. His intro when he comes out, the police chief, and he kind of comes out and he turns, and they're and the they're taking pictures, and he turns the other way and they're taking pictures, yeah. and he turns and he smiles with the wink yeah it's just that was like a highlight of of an introduction i had such a great time watching him
0: <laughs> well and and i have to say the the whole gambit here that they went and uh that Ugh. you know he just had a baby and right. the babies all had their little tags and that these guys in order to get chief Iello in their pocket uh these guys sneak into the nursery and take all thirty-two babies and switch beds and tags on them, so none of the parents know whose bed it is. But they all they kept the records of of the switches that they made, um, so that parents would not ho- know which child was theirs. From the nursery in the hospital, was diabolical and perfect, and a terrific twist on what normally in a movie like this you would expect to be an exercise of violence and and so this was this was something that i mean as a parent myself i i was just uh, i was it was torturous to watch him kind of come to this realization um and to watch the hospital come to the realization um but but it wasn't a big violent shootout and it could have been it was no it was
1: a really unique Scene, and that that I give him quite a bit of credit for. As a parent, it is one of the most horrifying <laughs> scenes to watch. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible, uh, but it works really well in context of it. And of course, you've got it's it's weirdly kind of a a very light tone at that point in the film because all of a sudden you're listening to uh, Rossini's "The Thieving Magpie" as they're kind of uh, doing this little baby swap thing, and uh, and it yeah. just all of a sudden feels like we've kind of entered a little more of a farcical bit of the film and it, it right. is kind of odd the way that it shifts like that um before it kind of goes back but um yeah, uh, it, yeah it's interesting
0: uh camera by again tonino delicoli good old tonino and you notice anything big from good old uh tonino tonino had shot uh once upon
1: a time in the west with uh with leone along with uh some of his earlier films like the good and the bad and the ugly um, actually, I think it was just The Good, and the Bad, the Ugly. Um, and I think he brought a lot of um, just a beautiful tone to the film paired with Leone clearly having a, um, a just a, a perfect fascination for um, the, the 20s and 30s and 60s in New York because he creates just a beautiful look of the city, everywhere, all through it, whether he's filming in New York or Rome or or wherever else they were filming. I know there are a few other places. It always just works beautifully. And the way that Tonino shot it is pretty stunning. And I, I just find so many images throughout this film that just look like paintings. It's just, it's such a beautifully done job here. And this is, I mean, this is a cinematographer that, um, I think he passed away in 2005, but he was working all the way up through life is beautiful in, in 97. Another beautiful film
0: paired with him. Nino Barali is back and Nino, uh, had edited, uh, both of, a uh, duck, you sucker. And once you time, in the, once upon a, once you time in the West, <laughs> Jeez, once upon a time in the West. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, we have some, some, uh, familiar fingers on, the celluloid yeah not to mention Carlo simi
1: who's the production designer yeah Uh, he had been doing a lot of interesting stuff i mean he had done costumes for once upon a time in the west and the good the bad and the ugly um he had done uh the uh production design on good the bad the ugly and and here he's doing the the art direction on this film and once upon a time in the west so uh he's kind of all over the place in the way that he ends up working with uh, leone but I think Carlos Simi is always bringing some amazing uh, textures to the world. And I think that helps in Leone's films quite a bit. Uh,
0: so this is the end of the spiritual uh, trilogy of the Once Upon a Time movies from uh, Sergio. But, uh, you know, uh, th- no official thing has been remade here. Uh, but, man, this does plant a uh, plant a seed in the minds of other writers
1: yeah this whole thing spurred on this this concept of of making projects uh that have once upon a time in the title it certainly uh i mean there had been other other films beforehand just like once upon a time um but uh once this film this trilogy really kicked off and kind of made a name for itself and and i mean it wasn't a popular film but once it kind of sunk in it really created this whole Uh, I I don't think it's a genre, but certainly a trend in titling your film to be Once Upon a Time In, and it just, I mean, it still is going on to this day. I mean, according to IMDb, there are 131 titles that have Once Upon a Time in the title. Some of those are episodes of TV shows, Mm -hmm. but, I mean, there's Once Upon a Time in Mumbai, Once Upon a Time in Korea, Once upon upon a time time in in the hood. (laughs) Once upon a time in the hood. Once upon a time in the CIA. Once upon a time in Mexico. Once upon a time in Siberia. Once upon a time in the desert. I mean, you just put anything in there, and you're going to be able to uh, to find a way to title it. So it's interesting that that's something that this trilogy did spur on. Well, you got to have a legacy, am I right? There it is. There you go. How did do with the in uh, award season? Unfortunately, this film wasn't as popular as I think people hoped f- it would be, and I think that's largely because of the edited versions that were released. Um, but it did still get 11 wins and nine other nominations. At the Golden Globes, uh, Leone was nominated for Best Director, uh, but he lost to Milos Forman for Amadeus, and Ennio Morricone was nominated for Best Score, but lost to Maurice Jarre for A Passage to India. Which was also lovely, you have to say. It is a very lovely score, yeah. yes. Uh, at the BAFTAs, uh, the costume design and score did win there. Cinematography lost to Chris Menges for *The Killing Field*. Um, uh, Leone lost to Vim Venders for *Paris, Texas*. And Tuesday Weld was nominated for supporting actress, but she lost to Liz Smith for *A Private Function*. The uh, the interesting. Uh, ones that i did want to point out uh, especially in the world of italian cinema well one the italian national syndicate of film journalists awarded it the silver ribbon award for five um, five categories and it won for all of them director cinematography production design special effects and score but then you jump over to the david di donatello awards which is the awards from the uh, academy of italian cinema and weirdly Leone was nominated for Best Foreign Director. This is in, in Italy? his home country. <laughs> yes, this is his home country. He was nominated for Best Foreign Director, uh, and he lost to Milos Forman there. And this is funny because, just as a reminder, when he did Duck You Sucker, he won this category for Best Director. So it's a very strange thing. I don't know if it's... Like, I don't know. I don't know how they determine that is it because it was like uh funded from a US uh, company uh as opposed to um an Italian one. I don't know. I don't know how they how they come to terms with that, but uh, yeah. Wow. He did not win that. So, there you go.
0: Very strange. That is very strange. Uh I I've been curious about this next segment uh since I turned the movie on uh and our our Vaunted APPFM how did this do oh. at the box office?
1: Well, for Leone's final film, uh, interestingly, he did get his biggest budget by far. He got $30 million, or $69.6 million in today's dollars. Unfortunately, regardless of the version seen, this movie just never really found its audience. The chopped-up, chronologized version of the movie was released here in the States June 1st, 1984, opposite another film we've talked about here on the show, Star Trek III The Search for Spock, as well as Walter Hill's film Streets of Fire. This film only earned $5.3 million domestically and a paltry 250000 internationally, giving it a total adjusted gross of $12.9 million. That left Leone with his first box office flop, as far as we can tell. If you remember, I couldn't find any information on Ducky sucker. And that left the film with an adjusted loss per finished minute of $247,000 so. Uh, ouch! Wow. It is a tough way to finish his career, but at least the film has seen a resurgence of popularity, along with a beautifully restored extended director's cut that received, as we said, the incredible praise at the 2012 Cannes Film Festival. And still, it is not the biggest loser we've discussed on the show. Terry Gilliam still
0: holds that record with... Uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. See, and I can't believe that, given how long this movie is. That I I guess you can call that a a significant win in its own right. That it's not the biggest (laughs) loser. But you know, I started this my my sort of commentary at the beginning of this film was: it takes a certain amount of ego to make a movie like this that is this long, that is this extravagant in the story that it's trying to tell. And and I think that probably hurt it. Don't you agree? It it is sort of impenetrable uh, to imagine going even to a three hour movie. Uh, and and investing in it for a large part of the popular audience that would have paid for it. Well, when you're when you have expectations
1: of a director and, and I think, you know, when when an audience member expects another um, fun Western epic like the good, the bad and the ugly, certainly it's going to feel like a different type of film and one that you're not really expecting. Um, because, I mean, it, it's not The Godfather. It's not just a, a straightforward gangster movie. Um, I mean, that has really interesting characters, but it's pretty straightforward. Nonetheless, this is a, a much more winding story. And yeah, I think that audiences probably were just not ready for it, regardless of what cut they ended up watching of it.
0: Well, I think with that, Andy, we should just we, we got to go to it. We got to see how this stacks up between us and rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you'll see our list of all the movies we've ever talked about on this very show, or you can swipe up or over or across or tap through to your show notes, uh, and you'll see the word flickchart. If you click on it, it should be a link, and it'll open up flickchart for you with this movie, where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up to ours.
1: All right. First up, we have Once Upon a Time in America, or Numi in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I'm going to say Numi. I'm going to say new me too. That's really sets the stage. It does. Yeah. Once upon a time in America or La Femme Nikita. Oh, I'm going to say uh, once upon a time in
0: America. I am too, but I do quite enjoy Nikita. Once upon a time in America or Sophie's choice. I, I think before I had watched Sophie's choice again, I would have said Sophie's choice. Now I think I'm going to say once upon a time. Yeah, me too. Once upon a time in America
1: or Indiana Jones and the last crusade gotta go with indie indie once upon a time in america or the great wall oh andy one of our matt damon classics (laughs) remember that (laughs) dives i do i'm gonna be
0: once upon a time
1: (laughs) once upon a time once upon a time in america or outland oh outland for sure yeah outland I I'm still that is probably one of the highlights of all the movies that we've watched on this show or we've discussed that I had never seen. I had
0: so much fun with that. Movie. I'm so glad. Oh, that just like so, makes my day because that movie. I yeah yeah it's a gift. It's it's a fun one. Once upon a time in America or
1: Field of Dreams, hundred percent Field of Dreams. Yeah,
0: Field of oh, Field of Dreams. <laughs> field of two by fours. <laughs>
1: Once Upon a Time in America, or Infernal Affairs. Very different uh, versions of gangster stories.
0: Uh, I'm going to go with Infernal Affairs.
1: Boy, I have my issues with both of these. I think I'm going to go with Leonie.
0: Okay, me too.
1: Look at that. <laughs> did you see
0: what happened there? Wow.
1: Yeah. That was right. some weird arm twisting I just did. Yeah, not really. <laughs> I'm all right. You're okay with that. All right. <laughs> Well, that did it. That landed once upon a time in America at 222 on our chart, 222 out of 378. That's I don't know, is that
0: disappointing?
1: It's a little disappointing. That's uh uh you know, I feel like it's uh it, it could have landed a little higher. That's you know, it's about what a a 40% or so. Um yeah. I feel like it uh, could be higher, but again, we've talked about a lot of good films on the show.
0: How did it land on your list? Um this film
1: ended up at 1257 out of 4060 on my personal flick chart, which puts it at about a 69%, um which I I think the um, when I looked at that number, it seemed surprisingly low for me. But then I saw the percentage and I'm like, oh, no, it feels like it's probably in
0: the right spot, actually, for my yeah. chart. I, mine ended up at 486 out of 1046, which I don't know. It Weirdly, it feels a little bit too middle of the road for me. Uh, that I felt like it probably, I, I wanted it higher, but man, everything it came up against was decisive. Like I had just yeah. no question, uh, about, you know, where, how I, what I felt about these movies. If I were to go by the algorithm, uh, I should be rating this two and a half stars, uh, out of five elsewhere. Um, I, you know, I, I feel comfortable with a three star.
1: And is that three stars with a like?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate a lot about this. I just have a hard time pushing it up into the four range.
1: No, I agree. I'm at three and a half with a like. Um, I I definitely have issues with the film. Um, I would put it over Duck, You Sucker. Um, But I feel uh, like there are still issues. Like I I feel like Leone, when he left kind of the fun, jovial filmmaking and went into kind of the serious filmmaking, I just ended up feeling like the there might have been some sloppiness in those early films that ended up kind of feeling like um part of the tone of the of the films. And when he went into these more serious films, any sloppiness that he kind of left in there just ends up feeling a little sloppier because yeah. of that. And I right. definitely noticed that in these last two with some of the ways that the the um the stories unfolded or the cuts happened. Um, but I still enjoy it. It's just, it is a beefy film. It's a hard one to want to put on that often, but it's, uh, it's an easy story to, to find myself getting folded into.
0: Yep. I, I agree. Um, this, this one overall worked for me. I wanted to be wowed by it. My memory of it was stronger than the experience I had watching it this time. Uh, yeah. and it does cause a little bit of fatigue, but with that. <laughs> We have finished our Sergio Once Upon a Time in Sergio Leone series. (laughs) Uh, Where do we go from here? We are going to be uh, returning to
1: a series that we've done off and on throughout uh, the run of our show. It's movies and their remakes. And we are looking at movies from 1968 and the remade versions of them. We're going to be looking at uh, The Thomas Crown Affair. And we're going to be looking at the producers. So it will be an interesting set of pairs to see uh how uh, how they were originally told and how they were retold
0: oh i'm very much looking forward to this uh experience i haven't uh i haven't played with the thomas crown affair movies in forever uh just yeah, watch it's the, gonna be fun yeah just watched the producers recently but not the uh not the, the early one so uh, it's been a long time very excited to take on this series
1: Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on Patreon.com slash The
0: Next Reel and get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week.
1: There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head over to Patreon.com slash The Next
0: You can learn more about us and check out detailed show notes at TheNextReel.com. You
1: can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter
0: at TheNextReel. And if you want to get into the conversation yourself, join our Discord channel for a whole lot of movie chat with movie lovers from around the world. You can find a link to join in the show notes or over on the website. The next reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Steven Smart
1: running Instagram, Ben Lott, who runs all things Twitter, and thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
0: Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, Amazon. There are actually quite a few reviews uh, of this film, and in particular of the extended director's cut, Once Upon a Time in America.
1: Yes, there's a variety of love and hate uh, (laughs) all spread out (laughs) across Amazon.
0: Yes, there is. Just for
1: this wonderful film. Truly.
0: Truly um I did you know i I would like to open with what I think is ultimately a a gentle review, but it comes from the perspective i think this is third party reportage though of uh somebody talking about the experience that her 91 year old Sicilian grandmother had watching this movie <laughs> uh, she says that it's a one star and it is absolutely too violent and quote filthy for a 91-year-old Sicilian woman. I bought this as a gift from my elderly mom after she saw part of the ending on TV one night and she thought it looked like a good movie. <laughs> oh dear. When she watched it from the beginning, she said she became so upset she had to turn it off. In her words, it was filthy and had way too much violence. Although she did expect the violence, knowing what the movie subject was about. According to her, it was too graphic and disturbing, so the movie itself was not good. The rest of the purchase was fine. So, do you see what they did there? Amazon, for once, did an okay job of actually delivering content to their viewer.
1: I like that they included that. I do, too. (laughs) Well, I've got a one star by Anson Crawford III, who says, The opening is the biggest beating of all time. Swore to God that if that damn phone rang one more time, (laughs) I'd turn the friggin' movie off. Don't care how acclaimed this is. No way I can get past five minutes of a phone ringing incessantly. (laughs) (laughs) I made it, Anson, but I otherwise am
0: right there with you. Oh, my (laughs) God, Anson, you nailed it. Nailed it. (laughs) Thanks, Amazon.